0: Hi, I'm Indy, and welcome to the Indica Podcast. I haven't done this in a while because it's hard and annoying to like talk to yourself. So I thought I'd bring someone that I enjoy talking to the most here. This is my wife, Shruti Matthews, and she's also... Uh, reading a lot of interesting things, and she has a lot of really interesting ideas. And so in this podcast, we're going to talk about what we're reading. Originally, I thought we'd each bring one thing, but that turned out to be too much, I think. Today, we're going to talk about uh, what Shuti's reading. She's reading Capitalist Realism and the works of the late Mark Fisher. So I think Capitalist Realism is a very important concept to you if you live in reality, and you deal with (laughs) Capitalism all the time, as we all do. So, listen up.
1: Okay, so Mark Fisher, well, first off, I really really like him. I think he's cool, and you're better off reading him directly than listening to me, but if I can whet your appetite, um, he was a British blogger, music critic, academic, and a philosopher, really, and his theory of capitalist realism was I think pretty influential, and I'll just quote him directly to define it so. As Fisher wrote, capitalist realism is the widespread sense that not only is capitalism the only viable political and economic system, but also that it's now impossible even to imagine a coherent alternative to it. So, what Fisher means there is that essentially that infamous quote that is attributed to both uh, Zizek and Frederick Jameson. That it's easier to imagine the end of the e- that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. Fisher saying, yeah, we live in that reality now, where we simply can't imagine a world outside of capitalism. No, and we
0: really are walking into that reality. Like a lot of people are, be like, oh, it's like too difficult to fight climate change. We just have to keep going. So people really are imagining the end of the world easier than they imagine the end of capitalism.
1: Right. So in that sense, you know, capitalism won, and it also won the narrative victory, which is that you can't imagine new futures. And for Fisher, it's key to make his readers aware of this capitalist reality, because the only way that you can begin to realize that your imagination has kind of been amputated is to see the reality that you're in. And I think his work he's trying to raise a kind of new consciousness, much in the way that Marx was trying to raise class consciousness. Fisher's trying to raise your awareness of capitalist reality. And once you see that, and if you get through his work, he would have taken you to acid communism, which is a very tantalizing and exciting title. And sadly, that was what he was working on when he died. And we do have you know, access to the introduction to that text, but he never finished it. And so just to go back to capitalist realism what fisher is saying is that well i'll give you an example of it so one example would be you Indy. you write you know scathing critiques of capitalism you know anger at western hegemony all of that but ultimately those critiques are your source of income so in that sense capitalism permits its rebellions and in fact it commodifies them so to protest can be very profitable and fisher actually makes a great example using Bono's product Red, mm. where, where um, certain products, like say an Apple iPhone or an iPod would be Red. And you know, if you bought that product, then 50% of the profit would go to fighting AIDS in Africa. And Mark Fisher makes the very you know, searing point, which is that, okay, so you can feel good and the company can look good by just buying more stuff. Your solution to this problem is not to change any structure of like, you know, a giant company, which is probably exploiting people somewhere else. And then, but, you know, that gets this nice image from trying to do charity or (coughs) philanthropic work. But the structure remains utterly unchanged. So you're just becoming a more ethical consumer, this sort of ethical consumerism, but it's still capitalist consumerism.
0: So the iPod is a good example of that because I mean people don't use iPads anymore. But what an iPad contains is copyrighted music, right? So they went in and they killed Napster and like all this stuff. Like what's actually what actually killed people in Africa from HIV AIDS was the many it like, was the patent protections and the intellectual property protections around life saving AIDS drugs. So they made those drugs for themselves in the rich Western world. And then they just let it ravage. They wouldn't let Africans manufacture. They wouldn't let people generic me- make generic uh, make generic medicines like that. Just like they're doing with COVID nineteen now. But you can buy an iPod, which is built on the intellectual property that's killing people, and then feel good about like saving some like marginal amount.
1: Yeah. So it, it really so that's the reality, which is that you can you can't change it, but you can you know you can buy more. <laughs>
0: Yeah. No, and you talked about, like, my example, right? And it's funny because I can write, like, the most scathing things about, you know, overthrow America and shit. And then I pay 10% withholding tax to the American government.
1: And, you know, Thomas Piketty's Capital in the 21st Century was an Amazon bestseller. Now, this is, you know, kind of a dense economic tome, which, you know, one wouldn't have expected it to be a bestseller. So it indicates, one, that, you know, people in the West are concerned with inequality under capitalism but also, you know, you have to buy the book. And I think if you consider the fact that Jeff Bezos, who owns Amazon, you know, his fortune is more than the GDP of Hungary, that in itself, I think, demonstrates the sheer inequality under capitalism that, you know, Piketty's book is taking of, you know, explains in painstaking detail. But you can get that snapshot by just looking.
0: And but this seems like an undefeatable, like, Uroboros, like yeah. a snake eating its tail. Like, every rebellion, it devours. It right. even commodifies, right? So you can, like, buy it. Like So Black Lives Matters became, like, a corporate rallying cry, right? Yeah,
1: and he talks about, you know, and it's not... And you know, you know, Occupy Wall Street protesters, but they're holding Starbucks, and it's not so a part of it for fish is that we have to ac- accept our complicity in this. And and he, to quote him, he says to in to accept our level of inser- uh, our insertion in this at the level of desire. So there's a part of us that you know we want to be a part of it. So it's not you know it's not this kind of you know, faceless entity that's just dominating us, but we are also complicit in that structure. It's giving back, our de- giving us back our desires, you know? It's made in our image.
0: So I think Fisher's very good at diagnosing this, right? But then how the hell do we get out?
1: So, one of the... I mean, I think <coughs> his key thesis of capitalist realism, and he really seems to continue this to the very end of his career, is that... So the the diagnosis is capitalist realism has vanquish the imagination when you if, f- if for example y- one of your blogs that was highly critical of capitalism and advocated for you know yeah how i married socializing the stock market the kind of response you got to that was you know they they it was a very kind of typical range of criticism which was either have you seen russia i've been there is that what you want and do you want everyone to be poor? Like this is idealistic, it doesn't work. Those sort of comments, which again, to me prove Fisher's point, which is that any attempt to think outside of capitalism is just, it's shut down. You're told not to think, you're called stupid, you're called naive, Mm -hmm. and just, yeah, you know, you, you simply, you're uneducated if you think that this works.
0: And I used to think like that, right? So like liberalism really won. Like, my generation, we really sort of channeled our dreams of changing the world into, like, startups, into business. I really thought, like, after Steve Jobs, like, business was, like, the new art form and not, like, art. And you also start to feel worthless, right? Because you feel like, oh, I'm, you know, writing, or I'm doing art, or I'm, like, raising a child. Mm. And society attaches no value to this. And you really internalize it, like, to feel that, like, you're worthless.
1: And Fisher was very much in agreement with Frederick Jameson on this. And Jameson kind of theorized what postmodernity meant. And one of its key characteristics was that there was a sort of loss of innovation in terms of culture, in terms of experimental art, um, just the ability to articulate the age that you're in. That formal inventiveness had kind of stagnated. So and a, I know people stuff, may not yeah. agree with that.
0: I don't know if I follow him there, because it... He, but he, just, he was I, just saying that
1: cultural production followed market logic, so it didn't make sense to be experimental. Because so give some examples. So an example of that would be, you know, look at kind of what dominates the box office in the US and the UK. It's, you know, superhero films and Disney remakes and this, this kind of those are formulas that have proven successful and so there's just minor variation on what worked before and just you're just fed things that are very old but just packaged as new. Another example would be Instagram filters where there's this kind of yes a fetishization of the past and nostalgia but also a kind of lack of inventiveness of the form of the photograph which kind of mimics an older time but doesn't articulate the present stylistically really i mean again i think that many people would disagree with that but that was one no, of vicious points that was that kind of mass mass entertainment mass um you know culture was kind of just a bit dull and it wasn't stimulating he grew up you know watching 70s and 80s bbc and he said you know, he saw Tarkovsky and he listened to all this experimental music. And for him, a child from a working class background who didn't have, you know, access to kind of high art and high modernism, for him, that was his kind of cultural stimulant. And now he just sees, he looked around and he kind of sees like, oh, there's reality TV and all all of these things that for him would now just be sort of capitalist sedatives, things that dull you. And for him, art was the terrain of struggle. That was where these ideas, these ideologies, were fought out. But now, again, for Fisher, they just sort of replicate the capitalist reality. They just—they're just mirrors of what is.
0: So his sort of central thesis is the sort of, what do you call it, the amputation of imagination. Yeah. Right. So like we can't, like the power, like the power structures. It's not. I mean, it's obviously, it's backed by violence, but it's also backed by um, the complicity. Of people, like like say borders. That's something I talk about a lot. And the main thing I face is the fact that people just think that is reality. Mm -hmm. They think that like, no, like a Sri Lankan cannot go from like here to say France, the same way a French person can go the other way. They just can't do that, and like that's for good reason. And why are you questioning this? And it's going to cause so many problems. And just Mm. like be quiet. Yeah, like.
1: and and one of Fisher's points is that you know capitalism didn't win that long ago. There was a point where there were other contenders, and there were other possibilities. And he looks to sort of counterculture in the sixties and the seventies, and he says he kind of wants to cultivate a, the consciousness of that time where there were these possible futures, sort of that still linger, and. That's what he was working on in Acid Communism, which I think is such a you know tantalizing title, and sadly he never finished it. So all we have access to is this introduction that he wrote, which is also unfinished.
0: So, but But I I, I remember, like I was in America when uh, when you know the Soviet Union fell, and the way America pitched that was really that they knocked it over. Like you know Reagan went and yelled at a wall, and it fell over, and. Also, the narrative they pitched about that was that like, basically like, Khrushchev went to American malls and he was like, oh shit, like, like supermarkets. Like, we don't have this. And like Soviets were just so collectively depressed by their lack of like consumer goods that they imploded. Like there's, another, there's a book called The Last Empire uh, by, Dimit- by someone, Plokey. And he says like, no, it wasn't that. It was just like Ukraine and like the empire, the old Russian empire, like decided to fuck off and the thing fell over. But there really was this sense that like, communism fucked up like it failed and this was it you know what Francis Fukuyama wrote like this is the end of history like like liberal democracy which to him really was consumer freedom not like human and freedom what
1: Fukuyama meant when he said this is the end of history was kind of well when he wrote this paper he wrote the, the book that he wrote in 1992 is based on a paper he wrote in the summer yeah. of 89 um, which was just before the fall of the Berlin Wall okay. uh, some people actually like misquote like say it was after but it was before. And for Fukuyama what it was that you know nothing can beat a liberal democracy. you know there's sort of an infinite there's a finite sorry a finite range of combinations and this is the best we've got. But that okay. freedom was so linked to the freedom of the market.
0: And I think it was, so like that idea of liberal democracy, I think it was like a bicycle, right? So as long as it, it was shared, like it was shit under Clinton, it was shit under Bush, obviously it was shit under Obama I'm talking about America. It was shit, but as long as it was moving forward, it didn't fall over. But what I do think has happened with Trump and COVID-19 is that that bicycle has fallen over. So it's actually the communist countries, China and, uh, like, say, Vietnam, who had the best responses. In in our neighborhood, Kerala, which is a communist government, that had the best response out of India. Like, So the, these are like, so then suddenly this idea that, like, capitalism is the best and produces the best goods. That Id- So there's that opening of the imagination again. Yeah. And maybe, I think maybe my Twitter is very insular and I do remove people that annoy me. But like that idea is opening up again. And I, I, Mark Fisher doesn't mean communism like literally. Communism... Well,
1: what so what he means by acid communism is, and I think the title is, you know, it's partly a joke because it's very much the, a subversion of capitalist realism. The acid alludes to the to the uh, sorry the the acid of that is you know the counterpoint to the realism of capitalism and while I must clarify that he was not advocating taking drugs because for Fisher that you know drugs were kind of a that was the you Like know, the opiate of like the masters. opiate Yeah, or like you know, Odysseus's lotus eaters. That takes you out of the world, it doesn't draw you into engagement. Like you need for him, he was trying to raise a kind of consciousness the way Marx was. So he, he was advocating for a psychedelic reason, a kind of consciousness that was unfettered, that could like think outside of these leaden limits of this is this is reality, End there's nothing better, there's no alternative, all those sort of very like, you know, dull and uninspiring uh, neoliberal mantras that, you know, this is what we've got, which is re- frankly not very exciting. Yeah, like
0: hustle harder, thanks.
1: And, um, and I think, f- yeah, Fisher knows that, and he came up with a much sexier title of Asset communism. And what that means is, yes, it, it may, s- again, sound idealistic, but it, it's, I think, a profound insight, which is that you have to be able to think of it. You c- To critique capitalism alone is not enough. One must also offer a very compelling alternate vision. And weirdly, I was reading a book by Alison Gopnik, who's a a very um, respected philosopher and psychologist, um, and she studies child development, and and she's a great writer on this. And she was talking about, in this book called The Philosophical Baby, what child's minds tell us about truth and love, um, she was talking about how the ability to imagine really separates humans from other species, the ability to conceive of an alternate possibility to say to compare, well, you know, compare outcomes and then create a new one. Um, And she calls this counterfactual thinking, but it's essentially the same thing that Mark Fisher is talking about. And I'll read from Alison Gopnik here. She's saying being able to think about possibilities is crucial to our evolutionary success counterfactual thinking lets us make new plans invent new tools and create new environments human beings are constantly imagining what would happen if they cracked nuts or wove baskets or made political decisions in a new way and the sum total of all those visions is a different world so this is you know this is a completely unrelated book this is about child development and being a parent and it's about babies but i think it's the same core point which is that actually that fundamental ability to imagine is what enables us to create and shape the world. Mm -hmm. And if capitalist realism has kind of really stamped on that, then that's what, you know, Fisher is calling for us to reawaken.
0: You know, if you talk to, I remember my father talking to me about sort of politics when I was quite young. I remember sitting on the edge of the couch and thinking about it. And I thought just like, wait, why isn't everyone just paid the same? And to me as a child, it felt like such an obvious idea. And then our daughter Luna also had like a similar idea, I think, today. So if in a child's imagination, they, they're always you know, they're creating the world, they're always reinventing the world. And we just like pat them on the head and say, like, no, like this is just the way it is. And I, I wrote something also about how we need to follow the lessons we teach kids in, in preschool, like share. You know, two wrongs don't make a right. Essentially like be nice to each other, like, you know, play together, have fun. But then we go out in the world and we don't follow those lessons at all. Like I think one, for me, the concept of like acid communism is just, you know, the golden rule and then do on to others. Like you don't want to be like, you, you want like a decent life and to be comfortable. Like why would you want that for other people? And also just sharing and things we tell children. And so I think maybe to me, acid communism is that rediscovery of just, you know, that childlike creativity and wonder and power that we have that we abandon in order to get, like, next day delivery.
1: Yeah, and it's... For Fisher, he said it was what happened in the 60s and 70s when, you know, alternate futures seemed possible. It's...
0: Well, Hunter Thompson, I think, had a quote about that. I think he was talking about some neighborhood in San Francisco. And he said you could, like, see where the, you know, the, the water reached and then it started to roll back. Yeah. Like, the water of, like because you know what i'm reading now is i'm reading stuff from like the 1900s or like the 60s or you know from all over the world actually and it's like these things which we're discovering now and these problems we're having like they had these problems and even thought of the solutions and the solutions just got crushed because people are like oh no like you know i'm gonna start like an ice cream shop or like build a computer and like get paid and then we just ended up with, like, a bunch of stuff and an earth that's melting.
1: Yeah, so he says, you know, we kind of need to, It's not that we need to remember that time, but we need to unforget it, that all of those futures hung very, you know, thickly in the air, and they could have been grasped. Just because they didn't doesn't mean that they can't still be re-energized. But I think it's a and hopeful
0: time, because young people are, like, more aware of this, right? And also, when things are broken, that's when you fix them. And things are obviously broken right now. So people are looking, like this is time of, you know, so uh, Brian Van Norden talks about, uh, In, in he talk, he's a scholar of Chinese philosophy, and like why did like Confucius, Mengzi, Zhuangzi, why did they all come at this time? And that was the warring states time, when things were like shit. So like, I mean, people were fighting. So these people were really thinking and trying to solve their problems. And he said to him, philosophy was people trying to solve problems. Uh, he sort of defined philosophy as you know when you're trying to agree on how to solve a problem like once you sort of agree on how to solve a problem like say chemistry you have a ways of evaluating evidence and like what constitutes you know basic principles then it gets kicked out of philosophy but philosophy is really about like how do we even start to solve these problems i think that's a conversation a lot of us are having today
1: yeah and so i'll just quote from fisher again from Acid communism and he said neoliberalism is best understood as a project aimed at destroying to the point of making them unthinkable, the experiments in democratic socialism and libertarian communism that were efflorescing at the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s.
0: I think one important point to add to Fisher, right, is that like, Deshika that pushed back in certain places, right? But in places like China or Vietnam, or even like say Sri Lanka, or like what they call the third world, right? So the third world is technically defined as the places in between that weren't like, you know, aligned with the communists or the capitalists. So a lot of them actually ended up taking a lot of the communist socialist ideas. So I I saw a a grid of the American spectrum once and their idea of politics is all entirely in the right wing. Like their left wing is in the global right Mm -hmm. wing. So if you look at it from a global perspective, right, that wave didn't completely roll back in the sixties. If you go to Kerala, like, you know, communist government, and people, the, and you can see in, in, with COVID, and like the places that like had public health and like, like say Cuba, like these, pla- these places like didn't disappear. So there are like other perspectives from across the world. And I, I do think like, you know, Marx talked about workers of the world unite and that seems essential, right? Because what's happened is the workers of the world have been divided. So I think as the Western imagination starts to expand, you know, you're going to expand your world to just other parts of the world where people have been thinking differently for, for decades now we finish now? Yeah, I think it <laughs> was really good. I think you did really good. I'm proud of you. Yeah, yeah and it's very interesting. And these are ideas yeah. that like people should talk about. Please don't and if publish you listen it. all the way through, then... Uh, what's what's the book don't to read? It, Capitalist please. Realism? Capitalist
1: no, Realism. Um, is, there own, is There No Alternative? And um, you can look up the intro to Acid Communism.
0: Yeah, and I think, like... For me, I th- it's a useful concept. I've only read it vicariously through Shruti. But just... You know, there's that story about like someone's (laughs) like two fish are swimming and someone swims by and says, how's the water? And then one fish looks at the other fish and and he's like, what's water? Mm. So that to me is sort of the realization you get from like capitalist realism. It's like this is the water we swim in and we keep talking about like modifying it or like changing temperature or whatever. But like maybe the water's too hot. We need to get out. The end.